Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology Nara. My guest today is Dr. Austin Nuppy, who is a an assistant professor of uh, political science at Utah State University. He has a PhD in political science from the Ohio State Ohio State University and uh, was a, a postdoctoral fellow at Dartmouth College. He is an expert in the intersection of politics and religion and even terrorist groups in the Middle East. We begin talking generally about um, his doctoral research, which was related to uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And then we move into an extended conversation about the uh, war between Israel and Hamas. And um, I was excited to have Austin on because uh, he, he originally reached out to me after hearing some of my podcasts on Israel-Palestine and said, hey, you know, this is an area of my scholarly research. He's been studying this stuff for, for many, many, many years. And he says, if you want to have a private conversation, we'd love to uh, have that with you. Um, if you want, you know, this is kind of my area and I'd love to talk through it with you. And I said, well, let's skip the private conversation. Let's just have a public one. So I didn't really know uh, where Austin was really coming from. Um, all I know is he is well-studied in this uh, area, something that I've been very interested in recently, so I just wanted to have another voice on uh, who is an actual scholar in this area to uh, discuss things with. So um, I'll leave it at that. It was a, I love this conversation. I learned so much and I think you will too. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Austin Nuppy. I'm here with Austin. Austin, thanks so much for being on Theology in Raw. This is uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Um, as we as I talked offline, I've been spending so much time just listening and learning and, and paying attention to the conflict uh, between Israel and, and Hamas. Um, and uh, you're an expert in this field, so I'm so excited to learn from you. Tell us about your ac academic background. What is it that you do? What are your areas of expertise? Just so people know kind of where you're coming from. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, got a scholarship to attend Calvin College, which is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's a Christian liberal arts college. There had some great uh, professors that really modeled what it means to think uh, think well and think wisely about international issues. And I think it was a wake-up call for me, just a realization that you could be a Christian and not have to turn your brain off. You don't have to check your brain at the door to be to be a, a thoughtful person of faith. And so that was encouraging to me. had a uh, mentor at Calvin. Uh, went to University of Chicago, went there, did a master's for a couple of years, uh, worked in Berlin, Germany between my master's and PhD. Then I uh, was off to the Ohio State University for a PhD in international relations, did a postdoc at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. And now, now I'm uh, working at Utah State University, which is in Logan, about 90 minutes north of Salt Lake. So I've been thinking about Middle East politics for the last uh, 15 years or so, spent uh, a lot of time in the region and uh, happy to happy to be here and talk with you. Man, and here's the cool thing is I I really don't know. Um, like you reached out to me and said, "Hey, this is." I think you listened to podcasts and said, "Hey, this is an area that I, I you know, um, kind of the area that I'm in uh, as a scholar, and would love to talk to you if you want." You didn't when I come up. You didn't invite yourself to come on the podcast. I just I skipped the private conversation and said, "Let's just hit record." So, I yeah. for my audience. I don't even know where this is going to go. I don't even know what you're going to say. All I know is this is an area that you have been saturated in for a very long time. Um, you've been over to the Middle East, right? You, have you spent like just how many, how often have you been over there? Where have you been? And um, what's that been like? Yeah. So I started working on the dissertation in 2014. So about in the last nine or 10 years, started making trips over there. Um, my dissertation, it later became the book uh, mm -hmm. on ISIS in Iraq. Um, it's been about a seven year effort. So most of my time has been in the Gulf, uh, the Persian Gulf and Iraq. Also been to Israel and Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon. 
So I'm familiar with uh, um, those yeah. dynamics. Spent some time working on my Arabic, trying to, to obviously as a, as a non-native speaker, that's a, that's a lifelong task, but I've enjoyed getting to meet and spend time with uh, Muslims and Christians and Jews in, in the region. So can you, su- so your dissertation sounds fascinating. Can you sum it up in <laughs> uh, yeah. paragraphs or like, yeah, what, what were your findings? Yeah. So I was looking at uh, the rise of the Islamic state in Iraq. And so obviously the U S intervenes in Iraq in March, 2003, we toppled the regime of Saddam Hussein. We try for seven or eight years to rebuild the state and the legitimacy of the government. That largely fails. And three years later, you have the rise of ISIS, which is uh, more or less Al-Qaeda 2.0 in terms of brutali- uh, effectiveness and brutality and radicalism. And so starting in 2014, you have uh, a terrorist group, uh, an, an Islamist insurgency that starts acting like a state. They control massive amounts of territory. They have hundreds of thousands of people uh, under their control. And I was interested in studying how do everyday people, ordinary people under insurgent control survive? What type of decisions do they make in order to determine whether they stay or whether they flee? Uh, for those that stay in the community, are they able to hide, remain autonomous, remain neutral? What types of dilemmas do they confront in terms of having to cooperate with insurgents in order to get access to food or fuel or water or medical services? When do they resist? When does arm resistance take precedent? So um, did, did a survey in Baghdad trying to figure out what Iraqis in the capital city um, thought about their military, their trust in their government and their military, um, interviewed people in the peripheral region of Western Iraq, where ISIS first um, uh, was on, was on the, the world stage, and then later spent time with Iraqi Kurds and Christians and other ethnic and religious minorities in the northern part of the country, places like Mosul, where um, these communities live directly under ISIS control. And obviously... Um, place like Iraq, you've had Christianity there since the third century. And so you've had ancient uh, communities there is trying to um, quite literally wrestle what it's like to be in exile in Babylon. Yeah. Right? Um, so, um, yeah, it's been it's been um, really meaningful, heartbreaking, but um, been honored to be a part of that work. I, I've heard that since and if I, I, I want to use language correctly. Do we call it sure. the U.S. invasion in 2003 or what's the whatever occupation or I don't know. Yeah, U.S. involvement. U.S. intervention. Yeah, <laughs> Inter- intervention. military intervention. Um, yeah. I heard that since then, the Christian population in Iraq was drastically reduced. Is that correct? Or something like yeah. over a million Christians and now there's a couple hundred thousand or something? I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, going so, on statistics uh, from like 10 years ago. but Yeah, so prior to the fall of Saddam – um, prior to 2003, you had about 1.5, 2 million Christians. These are all uh, Eastern denominations. So the Chaldean Church, some are in fellowship with the Catholic Church in Rome, some are, are Eastern uh, denominations. You call them Nestorian. That's kind okay. of um, a derogatory, I guess, in terms of critiquing their theology, right? That they have kind of a different Christology than we might have in the West. Um, ancient ancient traditions go back to the third century. Um, obviously, like a lot of autocrats in, in, in the Middle East, you need ethnic and religious minorities to legitimate your control, to maintain authority. And so Saddam really didn't persecute the Christians. He had Christian members of his uh, regime, and he basically protected and privileged that population in order to maintain social control. Right? Iraq's an, an ethnic and sectarian society. You have about two-thirds are Shia Arabs. You have another 25-30%, which are Sunni Arabs, and you have Kurds and Christians and Yazidi and other minority groups. And so under Saddam, the Christians... Um, were insulated from some of it, despite living in a totalitarian regime, right? After the fall of that, the, the state falls apart. And so you have a mass exodus of Christians to uh, places like Lebanon, Jordan. Those that are fortunate enough can go to Australia or Europe or the United States. Places like Dearborn, Michigan, outside Detroit has a large oh, yeah. um, um, Iraqi uh, and Arab population here in the U.S. 
And so that population is, has dropped by probably 70%. Wow. In northern Iraq, you maybe have 250,000 Christians, most of which have resettled in the Kurdish region in the northeast. Um, and so you have some denominations. The, the Pope Francis made a visit there two or three years ago um, to visit with the believers. But um, they, are, they are hard pressed uh, in a lot of ways. And that's how you persevere under that persecution is um, yeah. makes it kind of puts our U.S. political polarization in a different light in terms of whether yeah. or not we feel persecuted for our beliefs and worldview. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a necessary so, adjustment, I think. So so my my. Uh, in, I'm so glad I have a scholar here. <laughs> My very non-scholarly, non-expertise um, opinion that sh- probably doesn't mean anything is it just seems like when I look on from a distance, whenever the United States in particular intervenes in the Middle East, we make things worse, not better. Hmm. Can can you like is is that too simplistic, or can you correct me, or is that I mean it just seems like the <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like at the end of the day, I mean, the, the, so the the well. I would I would love to hear you respond to that. And then my follow up question is, you know, are we are we all pretty on the same page with the intervention in um, 2003 was not a good thing? Like that, we'd look back and like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah, I think it um, it helps to put it in some context. A, a, a great comparison maybe is the U.S. intervention in 1990 when um, Iraq invades Kuwait and kind of right. false pretense. They say, well, the Kuwaitis are stealing Iraqi oil. They occupy Kuwait. The Saudis get spooked because obviously now. You have an aggressive military, Iraqi military on the Saudi border. The U.S. builds an international coalition. So it builds a multinational coalition that has the support of a U.N. resolution and uh, has limited uh, accomplishable military goals. So in that case, we need to expel the Iraqi military from Kuwait. It's illegal, according to international law, to occupy a foreign country. So we're going to build a coalition to expel the Iraqi army. We're going to have the Saudis and Japanese pay for it. And so you had coalition members either contributing to the military intervention on the one hand or the financial support on the other. So it was multilateral. It was sanctioned by the United Nations and it had limited aims or scope. And so once uh, once the Iraqi army is defeated, um, U.S. Uh, and allied commanders say, you know what, it's probably not a good idea to push on to Baghdad. Right. It's probably um, in the coalition's interest in the long term to maintain a stable Iraqi regime. Even if we, we, we have serious political disagreements with Saddam, we can contain him. Right. We're, not, we're fundamentally not interested in overthrowing the state. That's a different story than what we see in 2003. Okay. Which we did do that, right? <laughs> right. So uh, we went in, we built a coalition of the willing, which really was nowhere near uh, the scale or ambition of the, the coalition we had in 1990. We um, 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 brought the issue to the fore of the United Nations Security Council, uh, perhaps not under false pretenses, but under shaky evidence, especially now in retrospect. Um, when Colin Powell goes to the, to the General Assembly and he holds up the vial of uranium from Niger and says, this is the, the the nuclear material that Saddam's using to build its weapons. Obviously, that turned out not to be the case. Um, we had allies like the French and the Germans um, seriously warning us it would be a mistake to impose a uh, foreign imposed regime change in Iraq. We go in, um, we have uh, um, uh, breathtaking military success in the first two or three weeks of the campaign. And obviously, keep in mind, this is in the aftermath of Afghanistan, where we work with opposition forces. We topple the Taliban. We think, hey, we can do this on the cheap. We can state build or nation build on the cheap. We're going to get rid of dictators. In the process, we're going to rebuild nations and we're going to instill liberal democracy. And that's going to make them stable, better off for their own people and better off for U.S. foreign policy. Turns out that in both the Afghan and the Iraq case, it's easier to destroy the state than to rebuild institutions Mm. and make people trust the governments that you put in place. Hmm. 
So it kind of so looks kind like of a good paper, comparison, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so to go back to my question, do you, is it too, well, yeah, is it too simplistic to say every time the U.S. intervenes that we screw things up? I mean, or what would, how would you, um, if someone asked you, like, do you think U.S. intervention in the last few decades in Middle Eastern affairs has been good, bad, a mix of both? I think since 9-11, it's probably on the side of, um, it's made things worse, primarily through unintended consequences, right? Whenever you go to war, uh, you can prepare as, as much as you want. But as the famous adage in boxing goes, everyone has a plan to get punched in the face, mm-hmm. right? So you can have as much strategy and planning as you want, but then the enemy always gets a vote. And so these are very uncertain uncertain endeavors. The way I'd kind of evaluate whether or not these things are a good idea is based on the stated goals. Are they ambitious or are they limited scope and goals? When we have a, a, a limited scope, clearly defined mission objective, we have partner nations on board. Uh, those tend to go better than uh, more ambitious nation-building operations. So it kind of depends on what what case you're talking about, and kind of could you have anticipated these effects beforehand? Obviously, policymaking is a is a is a difficult difficult endeavor, right? Yeah, yeah. I, th- this is kind of a different question. I, I've I've heard, and I, I I wish I had all my sources, but I just I just absorb material, and I don't read all. Like I'm not taking notes, but I, I've heard from multiple sources that like was it back in the 80s or whatever, like the U.S. actually trained people who would end up becoming ISIS and Al-Qaeda? Like the, is, that, is that a product of an unintended creation of certainly the United States? It is. Okay. That's not like some yeah, conspiracy so, theory or something? Or? Uh, no. So in the, in the late 1970s, 1979 is important in the Middle East for a lot of reasons. Right. You have a revolution in Iran. You have peace between Egypt and Israel. You have a terrorist attack on the holiest city in Mecca in Saudi Arabia. And at the same time, you have the, Saudi, uh, you have the um, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So the Soviet military goes in trying to um, um, maintain a puppet government in Afghanistan loyal to Moscow, and they find themselves in a nation-building operation and also having to fight a really nasty insurgency. The Americans, of course, this is the Cold War. So instead of going directly to war with the Soviet Union, both states have nuclear weapons, right? It's a bad idea. We rage a proxy war, and we decide we can fight this on the cheap. We can do something very similar, actually, to what we're doing in, in Ukraine in some ways. We can fund resistance fighters to um, um, resist an occupying force. In this case, we find a whole bunch of Islamic uh, foreign fighters um, called the Mujahideen, right? The, 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 the holy warriors that fight the Soviets. Some are, lo- are local Afghan warlords and, and resistance fighters. Others are foreign citizens like Osama bin Laden. He's a Saudi citizen. He's the son of this billionaire Saudi construction magnate. He ends up um, in Afghanistan and we basically provide these resistance fighters with a 10-year masterclass on how to resist insurgency. Including bin and Laden. So obviously, including bin Laden. Yeah. So the the genesis of Al Qaeda uh, is found in the um, Islamic resistance to the Soviets in the 70s. After that time, of course, there's a 20 year more civil war in Afghanistan. Bin Laden then flees, builds up his organization in places like Sudan, and then we find ourselves in 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 2001 with a very capable transnational um, Islamist organization that that had its roots in the training and support the Americans provided to them in Afghanistan 30 years earlier. That's kind of a big deal, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, are we funding any future terrorists right now? Like, it's like I would go back in the time. Like, did people know that there was going to be blowback here or they don't, they don't think that far ahead or. Yeah. So if you, I, the, the, there's a book and then later movie, Charlie Wilson's work. It's into some of that. Um, there's the looming tower, Lawrence, right. That, that kind of talks about those that had anticipated the blowback to come. Obviously, before 9-11, bin Laden and his associates were on the record four or five times on, on outlets like CNN saying, this is our primary grievance against you. We have five political complaints, and we're going to outline what they are. 
And until you rectify these complaints, we're going to wage war against you. Now, you can think those are moral, immoral, legal, or illegal, but he clearly telegraphed what he was going to do. What were the five complaints? Yeah, so he says, okay, you Americans, after the defeat of Saddam, you kept military forces in in the holiest land of Islam. You have a military base in Saudi Arabia close to Mecca and Medina. Those are the two holiest cities in Islam. So we're not going to have foreign soldiers um, quartered near these holy cities. You Americans support the Zionist entity that is the state of Israel that oppresses the Palestinian people. You also support Arab dictators in places like Saudi Arabia and Egypt. These rulers are neither legitimate. They're not Islamic. They don't obey Islamic law. So they're by definition illegitimate. Uh, complaints like that. So he, he outlines four or five, and he says that this is this is the reason we're fighting you. And, and moreover, given that you're in a liberal democracy, we will make no distinction between civilians and combatants, those that wear a uniform and those that go to the ballot box. And so civilians or non-members of the military are legitimate targets, according to our ideology. And so we're going to engage in collective punishment of the American people until U.S. foreign policy changes. I mean, I'm hoping there's like those sound legit. Do I say this live on it? What you said, just sound all that sounds legitimate. Like if Saudi Arabia had a military base in Boise, Idaho, I I don't know if I'd be cool cool with that. Yeah, you Um, you join the three percenters, right, and go down the road. Yeah, (laughs) if (laughs) um, or if they if uh, Sudan had um, funded terrorist activity to overthrow the latest U.S. president or something, you know, like I, I yeah. What are your thoughts on those grievances? Like, and I thought he, I thought that nine eleven happened because they um, were jealous of our freedom. I was told growing up that right. people in the Middle East, these terrorists, are just pacing back and forth in their caves, just fuming with anger over how free we are. And then they just came over right. and flew airplanes into our buildings. That's what I was told. Right. I don't, yeah. Me. So the, the cultural grievances are certainly there. Um, complaints about the sec- the secularism and the lewdness. Of American culture. You had Islamists coming to the States as early as the 1960s and then going back to the Middle East and saying, look at this decadent culture. Western decadence is, of course, um, going to collapse society from inward. And, and we can, uh, if God willing, we can use that then to defeat them, um, to bring honor and glory to our cause. That, that's certainly a part of it. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small part of it. I wouldn't dismiss it, but it's not the primary grievance. And I think it's very difficult for Americans, Europeans to hear that. Um, Without thinking, oh, you're blaming you're blaming the, the, those that died on 9/11. That's the U.S.'s fault. Right. We were attacked, um, and they make a distinction between an analytic lens, understanding the grievance and, and the blowback to that, and a moral argument. It's the same sort of thing now we see with Israel and Hamas, where it's well, Hamas can't be that can't be a rational strategy. It's evil. Well, no, you can hold two things in your mind at the same time. Something can be morally atrocious, like targeting civilians, and can also be a rational strategy. But somehow it's difficult for us to kind of hold both those things in tension, uh, whether or not we're, we're American citizens thinking about 9-11 or we're Israelis thinking about October 7th or we're Ukrainians or Russians, right? And maybe it's part of the human condition. Well, let, let's move over to Israel-Hamas. That's the, really the main sure. reason why I want to have you on. I, I, but it's, it's, this is helpful because would you agree? It sounds like you would agree that like the, these events aren't just all isolated. Like a lot of this are all kind of interconnected. Right. I mean, broadly – Right. U.S. Inter- Zionism, U.S. backing of Zionism, U.S. intervention in Middle Eastern affairs. I mean, all these things are not th- separate worlds, right? I mean, right. A lot of times we kind of focus on, we think about Israel, Palestine, and we think about the Arab Israeli wars before that, and we don't put it in an international context. And of course, I'm an expert in international relations. And I think about um, the, the, the network effects or the scalable effects you see from this conflict throughout the Middle East. 
We're now mm-hmm. seeing um, conflict in Yemen and in Lebanon and right. uh, with Iran, right? So it, it has effects that affect uh, that 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 scale beyond the immediate conflict. And so it's it's um, it's appropriate to think more systematically about the causes and consequences of the war beyond uh, um, Israel and Palestine. It's devastating that suffering certainly is appropriate to focus on that. But if you want to understand the causes and consequences, you have to think beyond that. So let's dive into the current conflict uh, in Israel-Palestine. Um, and I don't know if you want to give us some – I've had you know, people on the podcast to give yeah, some yeah. background. And, and you know, every retelling of the story, you're highlighting certain things, leaving certain things out. Right, and right. Um, you know, I think some people understand that any summary is not going to be exhaustive. And, and I've, I've, I've had some you know, negative feedback saying, you know, well, that was so biased or whatever. You didn't, you know, didn't tell the story right or whatever. So sure, um, sure. I'm going to just – yeah, give us whatever background you feel like is necessary um, for us to have a better understanding of the current conflict uh, that's going on. Yeah, so I think that the previous four or five guests you've had have done a great job talking about the local context. I think what I'll do is provide a regional context. Okay. And so after uh, after World War II, you have the rise of the state of Israel in 19, May 1948. You then have a series of um, uh, you have a civil war. You have the displacement of the Palestinians called the Nakba. Nakba in, in Arabic's catastrophe, right? So Palestinians are displaced from their homes in places like the West Bank. Um, between 1948 and um, the 1990s, you have a series of Arab-Israeli wars. So before the 1990s, when you thought about the conflict, it was primarily Israel fighting its neighbors. So you had um, a crisis in 1956 over the Suez Canal, where you have French right. and British and then American intervention there in the Suez crisis. You have the Six-Day War in June 1967, where the Israelis preempt an attack from all their neighbors. They end up in 1967 is important because that's when the Israelis start to control the West Bank. Uh, they, they later control Gaza and the Sinai, and their territory grows massively as a result of that war. When you talk about the conflict nowadays, uh, especially those in favor of a two-state solution, it's where do you draw the lines on the map? Is it before or after that 1967 war? that UN Resolution 242 is all about where are the territorial boundaries that emerged because of that war. You later then have wars in 1973 with Egypt, with Lebanon in 1980. And by um, the mid-1980s, early 1990s, something remarkable happens. You have peace between Egypt and Israel, 1978, 1979. Obviously, both those leaders lose their lives because of that peace deal. They're both assassinated. Um, and then you have peace between Israel and Jordan in 1993 or 1994. So at that point, uh, over the last 30 years, it goes from being an Arab-Israeli conflict to an Arab-Palestinian one. And you get internal conflicts over the West Bank and Gaza. You get a political uh, contention over what do you do with the 2 million Palestinian citizens of Israel that live in cities like Nazareth? In sovereign Israel, they may have Israeli passports. What do, what do you do with that? How do you resolve? Do you have a one-state or two-state solution? And then starting in the 1990s, that's where you get the Oslo peace process. And so um, that's, a, that's a major transition. We tend to forget this was historically kind of a regional conflict that then um, only in the last 30 or 40 years has become an internal, uh, an internal conflict as well. So it's important to pay attention to the regional context. Do you have – I mean this is maybe a load, – not a loaded question – maybe yeah. too big of a question. But like from us in the West looking on from a distance, you know, it's kind of like – well, who's more right, <laughs> the you know Israel or the Palestinians? And I and I could probably tell both of those narratives, and sure. and and you know justify one side or the other. Is that I mean that's too maybe that's too simplistic of a question, but I'll ask it anyway. Like when you look at sure. this back and forth, back and forth conflict, do you see like a clear oppressor and oppressed, or is it 
equally both? Is it more one than the other, but there's still faults on each side? Or how, how would you summarize it for us? Well, I think the way you've handled it um, so far on the show has been pretty effective. You present four or five narratives. And this is the way I teach it to my students here at Utah State. I tell them, here are five, uh, four or five different narratives. I, my goal is to um, present them as accurately as possible from that perspective. And I'm going to give you these different narratives and you can wrestle with the the truthiness or the validity of those and, and figure out how you how you discern that, right? So the fact that you had four or five conversations already thinking about, okay, what is this the history of the region look like from a Palestinian Christian perspective or a, an Israeli Christian perspective for that matter, right? Um, mm-hmm. What I would say is I think from a, from a U.S. foreign policy perspective, the U.S. relationship with Israel has been counterproductive uh, for the Israelis, for U.S. foreign policy, and of course for the Palestinians. And so um, it, this goes back, obviously, um, President Truman recognizes the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. The Soviets do the same thing. Stalin's interested in making sure that Israel is a client state of the Soviet Union. And so both the great powers at the time wanted to support Israel for geostrategic reasons, right? right. To that point, um, we've provided military assistance to Israel, which um, in abstract is not a problem. The problem is that when you don't condition that security assistance or military aid on um, political behaviors that are advantageous for the U.S. and and for Israeli uh, civilians, and so what we see right now since October seventh is President Biden and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan going to the region, going to Qatar, trying to negotiate. I suspect what they're doing behind the scenes is trying to introduce some conditions or conditionality to the aid we provide. But the public optics are just disastrous. It looks like Biden is allowing this to happen, um, failing to actually rein in support or condition military assistance. On, on some key distinctives, right? Targeting, distinguishing and, and targeting between civilians and military infrastructure, humanitarian pauses or, or ceasefires every so often, prioritizing the release of Israeli and Palestinian, uh, Israeli hostages and then Palestinian prisoners. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so um, the problem uh, for US support, I think, is that we haven't been conditional enough. Um, and that I think it's in the US national interest for us to treat the uh, Israeli government like we would any other ally. Uh, um, treat them like a normal state, right? Treat them as we would the Germans or the French or the British, where we have perhaps strategic interests that are in line when we have disagreements. We um, condition our support and aid on those disagreements. Um, we don't write blank checks to our allies. Right, right. I mean, I yeah, the history is, it, it's it's so complex, man. And I've, gosh, I've, I've gone back to like the late 1800s and tried to really go, go, back as far as I can, um, and really just understand because there's so many, there's so many things that just play a role into the conflict. I mean, I just recently started looking into like the, the, the Jewish, the pogroms against the Jews in the, in Eastern Europe, um, which were, I mean, you couldn't make a movie out of it. It would be too sickening the way the Jews were just massacred, raped. Um, I mean, it was so horrendous. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. And so they're like, we can't stay here. We we can't, wherever we go, we're the most persecuted group of people in the history of humanity. I think I've heard people say that. I look back, I'm like, is there one group of people, no matter where they go, they're just constantly being persecuted and, and the vicious lies and just the, just a horrendous anti-Semitism. Um, and then that's not even getting to like, you know, early 1900s and climaxing obviously in the Holocaust. I mean, so um, I fully understand the kind of foundation of something like 
Zion, Zionism, certain forms of Zionism. And I've, I've sure. even understood there's different, there's secular, there's religious, yeah. there's, you know, there's, you know, come, let's take over the land. And there's another form of Zionism. No, let's come and s- settle among these neighbors, you know? And so, um, uh, so I get that side, but I don't, what I don't understand is it does seem to be undisputed that the Palestinian people have borne the brunt of so much that just has not been baked into the popular story. I mean, even like the, and I will call it an ethnic cleansing of 1940. I've looked at his original documents, testimonies, stuff in Ben Gurion's diary or, you know, like it's, it's, so that's not, you can't, so like there was even like, like a lot of terrorist attacks by Jews toward the Palestinians that looks almost like a pogrom against the Palestinian people, you know, and died, was it Dar Yassir where there was like Dar Yassin, ma- yeah. Dar Yassin, a massacre yeah. of Palestinian people yeah. and and test yeah. eyewitness of rape. Um yeah. in fact, one guy said that like aside from suicide bombing, all the terrorist tactics we see now were almost developed by some, you know, Jewish terrorist groups in the 1947-1948 well revolutionary movements are by by definition violent right and so the british control what they call mandatory palestine between world war one and world war two and you see both um resistance efforts political and and violent by um jewish groups and palestinian ones you have this uh um, arab revolt 1936 and a series of subsequent insurrections the british uh, end up winning world war ii but losing their colonial empire in the middle east and um so you have you have plenty of examples of revolutionary groups like Haganah or Irgun yeah. waging um, insurgent terrorism against the British, the King David Hotel bombing, yeah. right? And, yeah. and there yeah. the distinction was maybe between military and civilians, but but revolutionary movements use unconventional tactics to accomplish their goals because they're weaker, right? By definition, there's an asymmetry that exists. They're weaker militarily, but they have popular legitimacy or popular support. And so what do you, um, what's your best goal then if you're a revolutionary movement then to resist and using unconventional means? doesn't make it moral, of course, but no, no, yeah. makes it, makes it rational. And so, yeah, you have, I'm glad you mentioned yeah, the Arab revolt in uh, what, 30, 36 to 39, I think it was like, you yeah. know, um, yeah. and, and there was a uh, response, you know, even during the 47, 48, there, there was, you know, some Palestinian attacks on Jewish people. It just, it does seem to be disproportionate. I mean, the, Zionism had the backing of the empire. It had the wealth of who's that uber wealthy Jewish guy back in the early 1900s. Um, not the, the Rothschild, not Balfour, the, the, Roth, Rothschild, the Rothschild, Balfour Declaration. Mm-hmm. Then the Balfour Declaration. Mm-hmm. Basically, the empire said, "Yep, yeah. this is you know." So they had so much uh, political financial backing. So it seems that when there were these class, and I think you don't have a right to just go and kick people out of their homes and slaughter their families and take over them. <laughs> like, and, and I'm not saying that was that was you know. That did that wasn't all that happened, but that was a part of the narrative. So the 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 clash, whatever clashes that were, it does seem to, from my vantage point, I could be you know I'm I'm just reading history and stuff. It seems to be very disproportionate, constantly for the last 150 years. So I I, I can understand where Palestinians would feel <laughs> beaten up over the last hundred years. You know, yeah, I think I think you're right to point that out. So there's a series of narratives, right? If you go back to um, the founding of the state of Israel, two different narratives. This is a liberation movement, security for the Jewish people there. The Zionist narrative, or one of the Zionist narratives of many, is to say um, the Jewish people as an ethnic, as a nation, need a state. The only way to prevent ourselves from existential crisis is a state. The only thing we've invented so far in human history that can prevent 
um, mass um, ethnic uh, ethnic cleansing and forced displacement is to have your own country, have a legitimate government and military. So it is an existential imperative for the Jews to have a nation state with defendable borders, legitimate government and armed force. That's that's one of the Zionist narratives. Yeah. Of course, the Palestinians say we also have a historic claim to the land. We're being ex- uh, um, expelled from these claims and we have very little recourse internationally or locally. Right. And then you have uh, obviously the same debate over, OK, was the Zionist um, um, migration to the Holy Lands beginning in the the late 19 or, or early 20th century? Was this an example of settler colonialism? Is it fair to compare that to what we see in Rhodesia or South Africa? Right. And I think there there's a fierce debate. Um, proponents of that would say, of course, it is. It was back, like you said, by the British. These are uh, European Jews that had a claim. Uh, they may have had a historic claim. They didn't have a, a, a legitimate uh, um, contemporary claim on the land. So they came in, they um, um, may have bought land from Ottoman landowners, but then um, in the process of building this new state, they forcibly displaced people, et cetera. The other side is to say, well, this is this is far different. I think a Zionist would re- re- respond and say, this is far different than what you see in South Africa. We um, have historic claim to the land. We're not uh, forming a colony where we're extracting resources and sending it back to Ukraine or Poland or Russia, right? So this is not colonialism like we've seen it before. and. Um, we were trying to build a different type of state. This was not like apartheid rule in South Africa. So there's another there's another debate. To what extent can you accurately uh, classify the Zionist project as being settler colonialism? Two different that, perspectives. Yeah, that's um, helpful. And I, I from it seems like it could be a both and right. Like some sure some Jews did move to the land and and say I want to li- I want to exist alongside my these these neighbors. You know, um, there was a, one of the early. Uh, proponents of Zionism is it Weizmann or um, him and Gurion got into a huge clash just prior to the Nakba, where Gurion wanted a much more militant cleansing. Uh, was it Gurion? I might be getting these names. Yeah, I think it was Ben Gurion. Um, but and he had a more mild like, no, we can't go this route of just viciously, you know, throwing people out of the land. So, so uh, yeah, I think there are right, certain right, right. forms of Zionism that, that that was concerned about just dispelling the native population and others. When it was a socialist, yeah, yeah uh, one version was a socialist political project where you go <laughs> right. and you create kibbutzes and you you make the desert bloom. You include local populations. You build skills and you offer public goods and services to demonstrate to local populations that it's in your interest. You will flourish if you invest in this new state. Um, and right. that's kind of the maybe an over idealized kind of socialist vision. It's not unlike the history here in Utah with the with the pioneers arriving in Utah, right? They start a, a socialist political project um, that eventually gets integrated in the United States, right? But right, you said yeah. So there's a there's kind of an insurgent uh, uh, version of Zionist settlement. There's the socialist political vision, and these were all contested deeply uh, during the founding of the state of Israel in 1948. So. I think the best we can do as educators and mentors to our students is to say, here are four or five different narratives, not in the not in the interest of moral relativism, not to say they're all equally valid, but um, let's look at these narratives, interrogate them, deconstruct them, and then learn the right types of questions to ask Yeah, to understand it. Have you happened to listen to um, Daryl Cooper and his 30-hour yeah. – Did you yeah. have you listened to that? What do you listen th- to some I, of it. What do you think? I, it seems brilliant to me. I just don't have like the – he seems to do really thorough research and he seems incredibly fair to all sides of this. And the storytelling is brilliant, but what, do you have any, what are your thoughts on it from an expert point of view? <laughs> yeah. So I, I really enjoy yeah, the Daryl Coopers of the world that can make this history compelling, craft a, a good narrative and, and, and get people interested in the topic. I think as a political scientist, I obviously have some qualms about sure. kind of the, 
the um, the narrative he's telling in terms of the political reality and the implications of that. Um, I think most of that is probably at the margins. If I get a student listening to that and that gets them interested in reading and asking more questions, that's that's good enough okay. for me. Um, I mean, he I doesn't, he's not, over he, the details, of yeah. course, but it's maybe he's not, not a scholar, right? He's, he's like an armchair historian, just reads a ton of stuff on, you know, um, but he's not, he's not, and he wouldn't claim to be a scholar in this area, but. Not that I know. He may have some, some training in academic history. I, I'd have to go and yeah. check, but I think by and large, it's pretty accurate. Um, and he humanizes the story. The, he humanizes both yeah. sides. It's so incredibly well. I mean, oh my gosh, it's so good. Um, let's jump. Okay, so that. Yeah, we could spend the rest of the podcast in, in history, but let's jump forward to October 7th, our current conflict. How 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 do you make sense of what's what's going on? Now that's a broad question, but I'd love for you to even take take it in whatever direction you want to go and and even maybe highlight some things that um the the uh, popular narrative, what the average person might not even understand, maybe fill in some gaps that need to be filled in. Yeah. So um I, I appreciate that question. I think there's two different ways to answer it. Uh, as a Christian, I think my response is I can't make sense of it apart from grief and lament. And the American church, I think we are, um, at least the white American church, I think the African Americans had a lot of experience with the, the grief and lament and this idea of long suffering, right? The Lord, uh, uh, an earnest desire and plea for him to make things right, to make creation new, right? And so until we start from a posture of grief and lament, I think we're not, neither our hearts or our minds are in, 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 the, in the right setting or right posture to, to understand what's going on. Uh, I've obviously have done done work there for a long time. Have uh, Palestinian and Israeli friends that have both lost family or or have kids serving in the military have lost family members because we have a have an Arabic instructor here at Utah State that lost dozens of family members since October seventh um, as as um, civilian casualties in that war. And so you can't divorce it, like you said, from the personal story. Um, at the same time, um, as an educator and expert, it, it, it helps to provide some some context. Um, to say that, you know, the, the number one thing that obviously Daniel and others have said it on, on, on your show before is that it's not, it's not an ancient conflict and it's not one primarily about religion. Right. It's a new conflict. It's maybe a hundred years old. Maybe it goes back to 1918, probably more accurately goes back to 1967. And it's primarily over land, which means it's control over um, not only borders and territory, but also water rights and other just basic things you need in order to make a life for yourself and survive. And so it's obviously our religious identities are important as Christian Jews and Muslims. Those things shape how we view the world. They shape how we think about politics, but it's not primarily a religious dispute and it's not an ancient one and it has more contemporary roots. And the Gaza crisis is newer still, right? The, the Israeli military um, leaves Gaza in 2005. They um, uproot Jews that have lived in Gaza for a long time removing them and their families, their, their, their homesteads from the area. Um, there's then an election where Hamas wins an election. There's a dispute. Obviously, Palestine exists in two different territories. You have the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Both those territories have different governments. The West Bank has the Palestinian Authority, represented by a political party called Fatah. Since 2005, 2006 in Gaza, you have Hamas, which starts out as a revolutionary movement in the 1980s, then has a political wing and an armed wing. And the political wing takes control in 2005. The Israeli government says, well, we can't have this. We're going to introduce a blockade from land and sea of the Gaza Strip in order to contain the threat posed by this movement. Um, they have legitimate security concerns at the same time when you control not only the borders, but water rights and electricity and, and, and passage and work permits. Then um, how do you expect any government to be able to provide basic goods and services to the people when you have a stranglehold on that territory? Right. The popular adage for, for Palestinian activists would be to say, well, this is an open air prison. How do you expect anyone to be able to survive 
or live under those conditions. The Israeli narrative is, okay, fine, they had an election they chose who they wanted to represent them, and now they pose a, a, an immediate security threat to the surrounding communities. Um, but this is all fairly contemporary, right? I think it, it makes sense to, to situate in those terms rather than saying, oh, we can never understand this is ancient hatred, right. it's about religion, and obviously the Bible tells us that um, X, Y, and Z. That um, I, I'm not a theologian, it could be wrong, but I suspect that's not the, the right way to think about the, the current crisis. So the blockade on Gaza, which is, as far as I can see, has all, has been brutal since 2005. I mean, not, the poverty rates, I think, are around 80%, unemployment, like 50%. Uh, mal- I mean, food insecurity of- is about eight and 10 Palestinians are food insecure. That's the vast majority of those that live under malnutrition worldwide. The wow. subset of Palestinians make yeah. up the majority of those that are food insecure on a daily yeah. basis, including most children. It's a young yeah. population, right? And you can't leave like there's a, I, I forget how many work permits they allow for people to go outside and work, but it's not, it's a tiny percentage compared to the population, right? I mean, it's people think, oh, but they can leave. I've heard people say like, oh, they can totally leave. Like, I don't think they can leave. Like, I don't think you can just yeah. move and in and out. It's difficult to get a work permit when my friend's family, when she goes back to visit family members, at least prior to October 7th, uh, she could not, uh, would not fly into Tel Aviv. She would fly into Cairo then take a bus or a taxi from Cairo to the Rafah crossing in the Sinai. Mm-hmm. That's the Egypt-Gaza uh, border in the Sinai Peninsula. And then um, depending on whether the Egyptians or, or uh, um, the Israelis or Palestinian forces decide to let transit that day, then they'll go in. That typically involves not only permitting, but some bribes, right? And you, you don't know if you'll be at the crossing for five hours or five days. And so even just being able to go back and visit family is, is arduous and, and, and uh, highly uncertain endeavor, right? So without, there's not, would you say there's not too much of a debate given not the narratives, but the just facts on the ground that these are very rough living conditions, right? I mean. Certainly, certainly. Okay. Um, and so the blockade was a response to Hamas being elected. Is that, and, and they knew Hamas was way too aggressive, way too militaristic, a terrorist organization. To love your, if that's inaccurate, um, and so they said, "Well, we can't have this this group in charge." I mean, of it's, this a res- place or- it's a response to the election you see in two thousand five oh six. It's yeah. also a response to the second intifada. Intifada means uprising. There was a violent intifada in the early nineteen nineties. That was when Hamas was a relatively new organization. After right. the collapse of the Oslo process at Camp David in two thousand, the camp, the two state solution falls apart by the year 2000, 2001, and you have another violent uprising where you have a series of suicide bombings in Jerusalem, uh, wide-scale political violence in the West Bank. And that, um, the the traumatic legacy of the Intifada alongside the popular election of Hamas is what what incentivizes this strategy from Direct military occupation of Gaza, then to a blockade. No, I've I've read I've read multiple sources that have traced the creation of Hamas partly back to Benjamin Netanyahu. They call it the Netanyahu doctrine. That he, you know, um, I don't know. I've heard some pretty. I've I've read some pretty clear statements along those lines. And I I don't know what support means, but early on he wanted Hamas to be in place because that kind of divided. the authority over the Palestinians and almost would halt a potential two-state process is how the how the story goes. Is that is that have you, have you, is that legit? Is that um, what are your thoughts on? So there is a, a kind of perverse or per, pernicious logic at work when you think about conflicts like Israel-Palestine or Northern Ireland or Colombia or Sudan, right? That um, as you have political negotiations towards peace, there are always individuals or groups that have an incentive to play spoiler. 
Mm. And so there's an outbidding process. There's always groups that see it in their short-term interest to spoil a peace deal. So the failure of the Gaza, the, the uh, Oslo process in the 1990s is a perfect example of that, where you have uh, radical right-wing Zionists on the one hand and Palestinian resistance on the other that see it as an, in, they, they're incentivized to derail the peace process because they have different set of political goals. Okay. So if you're a, if you're a um, Netanyahu or, or other members of his coalition, Smotrich or Ben Gavir, right, these individuals who want to see full annexation of Judea and Samaria, the occupied territories in the West Bank, or even in Gaza, right, Re, reoccupying Gaza, putting Israeli citizens back in Gaza, then what you say is, you know, our best case, uh, we don't want two state. We certainly don't want a one state solution. We want annexation. And the best way we can do that is to make sure that our political adversaries are engaged in divide and rule. We want them divided amongst themselves. And so you have this really perverse logic whereby um, Netanyahu and other uh, um, politicians, even more extreme than Netanyahu, allow countries like Turkey or Qatar to support Hamas because they see it in their um, political in their political advantage to have violence coming out of Gaza in order to say, listen, to the Israeli people, you have to keep us in office. We saw Camp David fall apart in 2000. There's still legitimate concerns. You think the Palestinians are ready for a state? They can't even decide who's going to rule what part of territory, right? There's no way we can go. We don't have a legitimate negotiating partner. Now, of course, that's an argument in bad faith, right? So, yeah, so would it be in our, so, because I've heard people say like Israel and Netanyahu like funded and created Hamas. Others say, well, that, that's a little too strong. They just sort of, allowed Hamas to get support from elsewhere? Or do we actually know the the specific details? But at the end of the day, Netanyahu uh, wanted Hamas in, in power. It was in it was in Netanyahu and in, in, in his party or members of his party's political interest to allow um, a different government to control the West Bank and Gaza. Um, I haven't seen any evidence that Netanyahu was involved in the creation of Hamas. Um, we know the that that Netanyahu allows the Qatari, the Gulf states, and Turkey to provide uh, funding and, and humanitarian aid to Gaza, and we know um, a lot of these uh, politicians are on the record uh, publicly yeah. about their desire to make sure that there is not a two-state solution. And so um, you can talk about the, the revolutionary roots of Hamas as a part of the Muslim Brotherhood, and you have Yasser Arafat and all that. You know, that's maybe a different conversation, but at the very least. You can um, understand how it would be in the political interest of of um, opposition to two state to say, you know, we actually need uh, we need this kind of pernicious symbiotic relationship between the Israeli government and, and Gaza and Hamas to continue, right? And that's what makes it tragic. Yeah. So there is some some level of would you say blowback October seventh? Oh, certainly, uh, certainly. Yeah. Hey friends, want to let you know that I have a book coming out in March of 2024. It's called Exiles, The Church in the Shadow of Empire. If you've been listening to me for more than like five seconds, you've probably heard me use the phrase uh, exile or, you know, that we are exiles living in Babylon. And, you know, that's something I've said for many years. And so this book is kind of the culmination of my thinking through the question, what is a biblical theology of a Christian political identity. So this book uh, does just that. It looks at how the people of God throughout scripture navigated the relationship with the various nations and empires that they were living under uh, in order to cultivate a framework for how Christians today should view their relationship with whatever uh, state or empire that they are living under. So I invite you to check it out. It's available for pre-order now. Again, the name is Exiles, The Church in the Shadow of Empire. 
check it out. What do you know about Hamas? I mean, I, I, I've heard a wide range of different opinions on, on Hamas, and I've actually gone in and read some of their, their early charter, their late charter, and their even recent statement they released. Um, and all this stuff They've is so revised hard to it, yeah. Well, they revised it, but then also just recently they, they explained why October 7th, what were their stated goals and what actually mm. happened and stuff. And, and I, 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 you know, I t- when, when Israel says something, I kind of take it with a grain of salt. When obviously, you know, said, you know, I was like, well, well okay, mate, what? I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to take anything at face value. Um, sure. But you sure. have just very different opinions on it or even like why, why the population would even elect Hamas. So I guess here's my question. Uh, is Hamas a terrorist organization or is it more complicated than that? And why did the Palestinian people elect a terrorist organization? Are they complicit in all the terrorism that Hamas does? Or how, help us understand Hamas for a second. Right. So as an expert in Middle East politics, I kind of situate Hamas in a wider universe of um, resistance movements in the Middle East. Obviously, Hamas is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. That was a uh, movement that starts in the 1920s by a guy named Hassan al-Banna, which uh, first uh, opposes the Egyptian monarchy, later to the secular military leaders of Egypt. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood was a um, it was a political movement that wanted to see the integration of Islam in secular politics. Um, some Muslim Brotherhood branches were violent and revolutionary. Others were, were nonviolent and wanted to engage in the democratic process. Right After the Arab Spring in Tunisia in 2001, or 2011, rather, you see a Muslim Brotherhood political party get elected. Um, so it's the same kind of, um, has the same intellectual heritage as other Muslim Brotherhood. Um, 1987, Hamas comes out of um, the Palestinian resistance movement, Yasser Arafat. Um, it's part of a wider, um, so this is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which is a network of different groups committed to the liberation of Palestine, opposition to the state of Israel. Hamas um, has a very particular theological interpretation of what it means to have Islam involved in politics. They Their modus operandi is uh, the opposition to Zionism. Um, the, the early charter, there's clearly elements of their early charter constitution that's anti, anti-Semitic. They later, about five or 10 years ago, say, well, we're opposed to Zionism or we're opposed to the Zionist entity. We're not opposed to Jews or Judaism. Um, if you're a Palestinian activist, you say, well, that's a, that's a necessary distinction. If you're an Israeli or G, you say, well, that's just window dressing, or that's clearly deceptive. Actually, read these documents in their own context. Uh, or where the sensitivity of the debate comes in is, can you be anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic? Um, from my perspective, you can criticize Israeli politics or even criticize the Zionist project without being anti-Semitic. There's lots of Jews around the world that are highly critical of the Zionist political project that are, are hardly anti-Semites, right? The other side to say is, well, um, there's no way to... Um, eliminate the Zionist entity or defeat Zionism without killing Jews. And so um, drawing any distinction there is making a distinction without a difference. First, I, I think I situate Hamas in, in a, a long line of other revolutionary movements um, that has a, a political wing that engages in politics, runs in elections, is represented. Um, primarily, their political leadership is in Egypt and Turkey and now in the Gulf and Qatar. Um, so you have a political uh, political organization. You also have an armed wing. Um, Quds uh, um, brigades, and you have armed revolutionary movement as well that engages in that. They cooperate with one another, they communicate. But it's it's for I guess for most Americans, it seems kind of weird that political parties have armed wings. But that's kind of the default expectation in most places of the world, especially in in places that have legacies of political violence. That you have um, parties that also have armed wings. We saw the same thing in Northern Ireland, where you had 
um, Sinn Féin, um, the political movement, and you had the Irish Republican Army. And you saw the same thing in Colombia as well. And so um, it's a political movement that has an armed wing that engages in terrorism. That's how I would define it. Okay, so why would you know Palestinians vote for a group like that? You know, you said that they are a resistance organization that does act in you know engage in terrorism. Does that mean that Palestinians who voted for them are, are cool at that, or is it like the lesser of two evils? Because I have, I well, quickly, I, I've I heard that the other options were like so corrupt and not doing anything, and you know, were like. It's kind of like, you know, do you vote for Trump or do you vote for Hillary? It's like, as Bill Burr said, you know, one's a racist and the other's the devil. It's like, and, and no matter which way you vote, you get people who are like, I can't believe you voted for that. But like, well, I, I didn't have a lot of options here. That's, I've heard people explain it that way. And I've heard other people say, no, because all Palestinians are pretty much into terrorism. And that's why they voted for Hamas. They're down with it. And that's, it's, you know. It's not- yeah. So people living under occupation, obviously, their priority is to end the occupation. They're going to support groups that can do that that can not only provide for their safety, but can also provide for their sustenance and their significance, right? So they want to engage in a party that can provide basic goods and services, allow their kids to go to school, jobs, electricity, water, all the things that basic government goods and services that you need to survive. And um, and it helps if they also secure you against a, a foreign occupier. Now, the question of why would you support that? Well, people have a variety of reasons. And we have colleagues in Gaza and in the West Bank that have been doing pretty credible, reliable public opinion polling of what you think about why did you vote for Group X? What do you think about the remaining options? Obviously, um, Islamist groups or groups that want to integrate Islam into politics um, gain in popularity when they see the corruption and ineffectiveness of their secular counterparts. So it's, it's in some ways the same logic. Why would you support ISIS? Well, it's like, you know, if, if, if these revolutionary fighters come to their community and they're less corrupt and more helpful than the local local city council members, it's no surprise that you're going to support someone that can provide for those basic goods, goods and services. Um, so, you know, you look at, we've had, I have, I've had colleagues doing polling before October 7th, when you ask the average Palestinian man and woman on the street, do you support um, Hamas's governance of Gaza? About one in five said um, support or highly support. 20, maybe 25% after October 7th, that goes up to 40 to 45%. And then when you ask Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza and internationally, was uh, is Hamas justified in the resistance of the Israeli occupation? Something like two thirds, maybe as high as seventy percent, say they're legitimate in in their in their in their politics of, of resisting Israel. And so it's no surprise that um, the severity of the Israeli response then triggers a rally around the flag effect. That both in Israeli society and also among Palestinians, um, they see they see well we have to support Hamas. What other effort do we have? We've tried nonviolent resistance. We've tried marching to the walls of Gaza. And protesting, 300 of us were killed by the Israeli military when we protested in 2017, 2018. We've tried boycott, divest, and sanction. We've tried nonviolent resistance. Nothing works. The only, the only. So if you're if you're a supporter of Hamas's tactics, you're going to say the only way we get the Palestinian cause on the radar of the international community is through violent resistance. The only time people pay attention to our suffering is when we violently resist. We've tried every other option. What would you have us do? That was super important, what you said about the, it's called the Great March of Return, right? Where for a period right. of, I want to say 18 months or so, um, there was a a nonviolent, yeah, resistance and- um, Civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. Right. And there were Israeli snipers that were like picking off medical, I mean, nurses and stuff. I saw videos of like kneecaps being blown off of like handicapped people, nurses, um, you know, and there were, I think there was like, 
yeah, 300 that were killed, Palestinians killed yeah. as they were peacefully resisting. And I think there was one, I think a total one Israeli that was killed. So there, there might have been some violent re- reactions, but that wasn't the heart behind, I mean, that wasn't the, the bulk of it. So, and that was what, in 2018, 19 or something like that? So it was in the last five years or so. Yeah. Um, oh, man. I, yeah. And, and whenever we do this, I, I, I'm going to get, um, several one-star reviews and a few emails saying you're justifying terrorism. You are a spokesperson for Hamas, which I just don't understand. I mean, to, to say, let's understand the context in all this. Some people say that you shouldn't even try to do that. Just denounce it as evil. and that. But I, I don't, it's got, if, if we don't understand the context, then it's going to happen again and again and again and again. Um, so it's, I mean, it's difficult, right? Like you, you can understand the motivations or the, the rationale behind a strategy. And also maintain moral judgment of it. Something can be morally atrocious or evil or unethical and also be rational or strategic. Those things can both exist. You have to hold those things in tension, right? It's difficult for us to do that, I think. People do need to hear me say, uh, well, do you condemn October 7th? So let me just say, I am horrified at the death of all of the Israelis that happened on October 7th. I condemn regardless of the motivation, regardless of the justification, regardless of the rationale, that was an evil act because killing people, especially civilians, was evil. Now, uh, um, did Hamas, because this is debated too, people don't know this is debated, but if you, again, read broadly and not just your headlines of mainstream news outlets, like there's one side of the story that says Hamas was targeting, they were going, okay, one, one, one narrative is they broke out and they hate Jewish people and they're going to kill as many civilians and children and rape as many women as they could because they hate Jewish people um, and they want to take over Israel. Another side is they were targeting combatants and they weren't trying to kill civilians. They were trying, they were intended to kidnap people to bring them back as, because that's only the, as collateral to try to free, you know, their own prisoners in, in, in the West Bank. Um, Palestinians held held in held in prisons. Um, do you have you looked? I mean, do you know like with the the? And then there's a growing body of evidence that a a number we don't know the number of Israelis were killed by their own uh, people. In fact, there was um, an article that was released in Hebrew from an Israeli journalist that was just recently translated in English that said there were uh, seventy cars that were driving back to Gaza most likely had hostages that were, they were told to, um, the IDF was told to fire and and just destroy them. It's called the Hannibal directive where, uh, we don't want hostage living hostages to be in Hamas's hands. It's better to sacrifice these hostages for the sake of the greater good or however the Hannibal directive is. You could look up the Hannibal directive. It's again, this is not conspiracy. This is well. And this article has documentation that the Hannibal directive wasn't explicitly called that, but that kind of tactic was, and they've examined these cars and said, yeah, this wasn't, this was done by the IDF, not, um, not Hamas or something. Um, tell me if I'm off on all that stuff. I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Cause I'm, I'm reading stuff and I, I try to read as deeply as I can to make sure I'm not just reading a headline sure. or some, you know, sensational article. Uh, but if I'm off on anything or yeah, help us sure. understand what happened on October 7th. Yeah. So a lot of this is obviously, um, atrocious and heartbreaking and important to get the details, right. It also, um, despite our technology and the internet and social media, the fog of war or the mass uncertainty and confusion that surrounds these events is still with us. 
it's something that despite our technology and our reporting, the citizen journalists at work, we still can't um, diffuse a lot of that uncertainty. It's going to take time and investigation to sort that out. Um, the motivations of, of Hamas, the planning that went into it, their initial goals, how do those goals evolve? What we know about human behavior, I mean, if you've ever spent time uh, in a political protest, you've been in a large city when a protest is going on, you can be involved in a group that has one motivation or one message, and all you need is two or three or bad actors mm -hmm. in a group of several dozen or several hundred people for situations to get really, really violent. Yeah. There's network effects at play. So, so you could have 500 peaceful protesters and three or four that are um, sociopathic maniacs, and that can turn the whole crowd violent, create mass confusion. So there's that dynamic at work. There's the, what were the political goals? Um, how did those goals evolve? Perhaps it was the case that when the, um, the, the militants break through the gates, they target the initial military checkpoints at the envelope between the state of Israel and Gaza. They take over the checkpoints and then there's confusion and, and mass euphoria and say, okay, what next? Can we take more territory? Uh, um, what do we do next? Of course, there are fighters, um, that victimized, um, their sexual and gender based violence against Israeli civilians, particularly women. Um, that's been widely reported. It's being um, verified and investigated now by the United Nations. Uh, there's a United Nations team going in to try to um, um, document not only second or third-hand accounts, eyewitness accounts, but also hearing from the victims of, of sexual and, and gender-based violence to find out how widespread was that, uh, when did it occur, and what So manner. that did, that um, did, you're saying that did happen. We're not sure to the extent, but for like all the evidence we have that there was uh, rape and so on. All the all, yeah. the all the evidence suggests that happened now. Um, the uh, how widespread it was, um, who committed the crimes, and what time span, um, in what time frame, and, and how integral was that to the motives and intentions of the attack? Was that a primary objective of the October seventh operation? That's still uncertain. That's going to require more analysis and more evidence. And either way, that is absolute absolute evil. And uh, like, he, yeah, that that's heartbreaking yeah. and, and morally atrocious. Yeah. As is the targeting of Palestinian civilians, right? Right. That to when a when a when an armed group targets non-combatant population, it is illegal according to international humanitarian law. It's immoral and it's ineffective. And it's ineffective, immoral, and illegal if the Israelis do it. At the same time, if Hamas does it, there was so much evil committed on October seventh, and there's been evil committed as a response to that. And I just, it just seems to be the as we're looking on lamenting. Um, and trying to understand and praying and lamenting more um, and, and praying for peace um, that we can acknowledge that there, there's not like one right side, one wrong side. There is a lot of evil that was committed and is continuing to be committed. Um, Israel, right when it happened on October 7th, my, I, I lived in Israel in, in 1999. Um, love my PhDs in Judaism. Like it's my absolute, I've thought about it. Like I just love, 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 Israel, uh, the Jewish people in particular, and everything that the land represents. Um, so when I woke up Saturday morning, my kids told me there's something going on. They're on their phones. They're like something's going on in Israel. And I kind of like, there's always something going on in Israel, you know? And then I saw like, oh, this is, this is different. And my heart just sank. And I was just, I, you know, as I looked at the staggering numbers that were mounting, I was like, that that sickness in your stomach and also anger kind of fused together where you just feel incapacitated, you know? And then my next thought was, oh my word, um, there's gonna be a massacre of Palestinians as a response. Because the level, like Israel typically responds, you know, you you step on my toe, I'm gonna beat your shin. You know, it's the response is usually 
overwhelming. So to send a message, don't you ever do that again, you know? And this, the attack was so extensive and horrific that I'm like, the response is going to be 10 times this, which means it's going to be thousands and thousands of thousands of, um, it, I would say innocent civilians, you know, being killed. Like that's just, and that's exactly what has happened. I don't know. We're recording January 30th right now. The death toll last I checked was 26,000, 70% women and children, not including the estimated 10,000 people lying under rubble that they haven't identified yet. That's not including, I don't know how many injured, you know, how many have lost a limb, how many kids are, you know, have a leg amputated with no anesthesia. And then the, the post-traumatic stress and the legacies of violence coming from that famine, be generational famine, disease, it, right. the, the cities inhabit. I mean, it just is the ripple of the, the death tolls shocking enough, but the ripple effects are just like, I, unbelievable. I, I read through the entire, okay. So this is, I read through the entire 84 page, um, South Africa document that was saying Israel is committing genocide. Um, I didn't like the word genocide at first because I'm like, I don't want to use a a charged term that, you know, as bad as it is, as much as there's crimes against humanity, I just don't want to just latch onto a term that is being ill-defined. So I was, I was reluctant to use the term genocide until I read that document. Um, it is... It is damning. I mean, I, did you read through it? I don't know if you read. read. I've read about half okay. of it. Yeah, the, the middle section where it has it has a um, providing quotes in context yes. to genocidal statements. Genocidal rhetoric. Ben- yeah. Rhetoric by the coalition, by Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition. Um, there's about eight or nine pages of that. I signed it to students to read and we kind of look through it. It's all uh, vigorously footnoted and cited and placed in context. Um Certainly horrific. So there's a distinction between intent and actions. Um, and there's, of course, this analytic clarity you want at the same time saying uh, there's a moral discomfort. We're saying, well, technically, this is ethnic cleansing and not genocide, right? That that sounds morally tone deaf. Um, um, right. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, after reading that, and yeah, to me, it was that section. It was, it was, yeah, those 10 pages of explicit statements pervasive from many leaders um, at the top. They even had there was did you, did you read that part about they had um they paraded around some veteran of the nineteen forty eight war that was like ninety four years old or something that was like encouraging Israel to keep fighting and he participated in the Deir Yassim massacre he was part of the what's the Igar what's that terrorist Igaru or Igar- yeah I'd have to check but yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, at least that's what it, I mean, the document said. He was actually part of, like, and he's spouting what would be very genocidal. Like, they're it's the civilian, it's everybody. Like, we need to wipe out all Palestinians or what, whatever he said. Um, so, you, if you look at the effect, that doesn't necessarily determine the uh, intention. But then you look at all these statements. Like, you have the intention, and then you have what's actually going on. I mean, and then the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, ruled fifteen to two that there is plausible evidence that this could be a genocide moving it to what the next stage which could take years right to actually determine further arbitration of the claims and evaluation of evidence yes so they didn't say it was genocide they said there's enough evidence that it plausibly is genocide enough to move to the next stage merit further investigation further investigation what are your thoughts i mean you're an expert in this field is this a genocide in your opinion i mean not just opinion but based on the evidence you've looked at Right. So when you talk about when you talk about the 
um, the conflict. These are the two most charged words. I've held events on campus and had students come complain to me and say, how can you talk about these events without identifying or condemning apartheid and genocide? Both terms highly charged emotionally, politically. They also are legal terms and they have legal criteria. So when you talk about apartheid governance, you're talking about um, different sets of laws applied to different groups based on some ethnic racial distinction. And so the US or the uh, Israeli military occupation in the West Bank is apartheid governance because Jewish settlers are subject to civilian courts, a different rule of law, a different system of justice than Palestinian citizens living in the West Bank. They're subject to military courts, which have different standards of evidence, different uh, um, arbitration procedures, et cetera. So um, Israeli occupation in the West Bank is by definition apartheid governance. Does that mean Israeli, Israel is an apartheid state in all instances? No, but you can point to the, the, the occupation certainly in the West Bank as a, as a textbook definition of an apartheid legal framework. Okay, now that's that's um, some analytic precision that is going to leave people highly dissatisfied. Um, activists on either side are going to say, "Well, you're morally equivocating, or you're dodging the question." No, I'm just making and in, in, uh, introducing some precision uh, to that term. Okay, the genocide one is even harder still. Um, there's a historian of the Holocaust at Brown, um, Jewish American guy that spent a lot of time. I'm forgetting his name. You'll, you'll want to look him up. He's written for the New Yorker about the claim of genocide and really thinking in historical and legal context about those claims. I think he's a necessary voice to inter, uh, in, introduce here. Um, I, I had the same discomfort, um, but when then when you look at the legal criteria of genocide, it is the targeting, displacement, killing of a group based on some ethnic, racial, linguistic, religious criteria. It does not require the total extermination of that group. That, right? that was so that's a necessary that was my distinction. Initial, that was my initial hesitation. I'm like, look. If Israel yeah. wanted to commit genocide, they could have done so on October 8th and it would have taken about 10 minutes, you know, like they have the, they didn't right. just come in and just wipe out whatever. Um, but that's not necessary. Genocide doesn't require, like, it's more complicated than that. It's the, is it the partial or can you, yeah, go on with the definition of genocide and help us understand. So yeah, you want to, you want to look it up or put it in the show notes. It's important to get correct, but there's a distinction between intent and actions. There's also a, a distinction between, um, uh, it does not require the complete elimination of an ethnic group, right? It includes forced displacement, ethnic cleansing, removing forcibly removing people uh, from their land. And so um, when you're saying, well, the Israelis aren't committing genocide because they haven't killed all Palestinians, well, that's not the definition of genocide. And in turn, an Israeli would say, of course, this isn't genocide. Look at what it, we have 2 million Palestinian citizens of Israel living within the state. If we wanted to commit genocide, we would expel them from the state of Israel. Okay. But the criteria, and if you look at you look at the South African brief in particular, the intent of permanently displacing local communities and re-annexing land, right? Forced displacement and ethnic cleansing are two criteria that fit within that framework. And it's important that you it's important to identify that this is clearly the political agenda of some members of Netanyahu's coalition is to displace people, uh, um, annex that land, right? It, it, it's all in the rhetoric of, of how you identify territories. Do you call it the West Bank? Do you call it Janine and Bethlehem and Nablus? Do you call it Judea and Samaria? Do you call it the occupied territory? I've met, I've been in the occupied West Bank. I've talked to settlers. I talked to a guy in Ofra. He said, he points over there and said, Father Abraham gave us the land over there and we're not leaving. This is Judea and Samaria, right? And so Maximus political claims by on the part of Israelis and on the part of Palestinians really um, derail any peaceful settlement of the conflict when you have a maximalist claim. So do you think, I mean, uh, would you say, what would you, how, would, would you say, yes, there's 
evidence of genocide or is it uh, plausible evidence? How would you how would you word it just so we can be precise? Yeah, I would say or, do you, or, or do you say like there is? Yeah, it's a genocide. I would say the investigation is ongoing. There's clear evidence of forced displacement and ethnic cleansing. The extent and scale of that and how that lines up with the political objectives of those um, within the IDF and the Netanyahu coalition, the, the political coalition requires further investigation. But the, the case the, the case was, I think, well argued. I'd encourage people to go and read the brief and to continue to adjudicate that. Because here's what, here's what I've thought. Um, the United States has continued to state they will almost uncon- like unconditionally continue to support Israel. And, and they, you know, well, we've encouraged, you know, them to be a little bit better and not kill so many civilians and stuff. But there, there's no like it, it, it seems like like stopping the 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 stopping the let's just say the possible genocide is a 30 second phone call away. It's Biden saying, hey, baby, what's up, man? Cool. Awesome. Um, we're not going to give you a single dollar or a single piece of military Tank whatever yeah. nothing done forever um until you just stop shooting hang up bam right i mean or for every civilian that cool. dies from here on out we will withhold uh 10 million dollars of government funding so you kill 10 civilians and that's a, you know like i mean well israel israel's yeah, military it, does not exist without america's backing right i mean u.s provides massive amount of military assistance and, and, and intelligence support to the israel, uh, israel defense forces at the same time, when you think about U.S. politics, it's not just a matter of the executive branch. Congress has to author, authorize security assistance. So it involves not only the presidency and the National Security Council, it also involves Congress. All this is also happening in the midst of an election year. We know that most voters don't vote on foreign policy issues. You know, the Gaza war is maybe in the top 20 issues of the average primary voter in New Hampshire, Iowa, right? It's really not on our ra- radar. It won't be during the general, but... Um, Biden in his reelection campaign has to basically play a very delicate balancing game of appealing to the general electorate, which is by and large pro-Israeli, both progressive Democrats and conservative or populist Republicans. Though you see elements in both those parties now that there's blowback against that, particularly among millennial, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z, our, our students, right? Um, at the same time, I think you have the Secretary of State, you have Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, going to the Gulf, going to Israel trying to uh, exercise as much leverage as they can, knowing that their hands are tied by the public optics that the, the Biden administration needs to maintain in an election year. And so these perverse incentives, there's obviously perverse incentives also in Congress. Those um, requires uh, voting on uh, apportioning aid. You have members of Congress that want to get in the media, want attention, have support from different lobbying coalitions, defense firms, et cetera. And so um, it just turns into a, a complete mess. And um, I, I think I, there are ways that the administration could be handling it better. I don't think Biden's handling of the crisis has been atrocious. Um, you have to think in terms of the counterfactual, what, what would a President Trump have done? Right. I think that Biden, the Biden's Same approach thing, would have yeah. looked a lot like, like President Obama's response. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see in U.S. public opinion and also when it comes time to vote, to what extent this is on the minds of voters. Like you said, especially I've read some polls that like, especially among younger Democrats, Gen Z, millennials. Um, that they're very, they're not on board with this at all. And, um, he, he might lose, you know, a good portion of that younger vote of that are, that would typically vote Democrat. But yeah, the problem is, are they going to vote for Trump? Would Trump do anything different? Well, no. I mean, they, I think, I think Arab American voters, yeah, they'll stay home, right? So the Arab American voters will stay home. The, 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 the democratic socialist wing of the democratic party may stay home. They may vote, um, for Cornell West or third party. 
Uh, they, they may not, the Democrats may not be able to mobilize that. At the same time, you have populist or nationalist conservatives, the kind of supporting President Trump and the Republican Party that are suspicious of U.S. support for Israel because they're by and large non-interventionist or isolationist. And there's clearly also an element that's anti-Semitic. And so you have wings of both party that um, question that policy on some legitimate grounds and some some uh, um, racist grounds as well, right? Both those yeah. things exist. A- Anti-Semitic and anti-Palestinian on, on the other anti-Arab. side too. Yep. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Anti-Arab. Um, I mean, it just it, it it is a bit disgusting the the politics of the empire that you know you play all these games and you have to word things a certain way because I want to stay in power I want to win the votes. Meanwhile, you have dead children being pulled out of rubble by their fathers and mothers. You know, like it's just it it's just here's here's where I get so the United States bipartisanly almost unconditionally supports the state of Israel. The state of Israel is plausibly committing genocide. Um, the l- large swaths of the evangelical church in America also supports the state of Israel. It- it's possibly disturbing that the evangelical church could go down in history as being on the side of people committing genocide. I'm not saying it's exactly the same as like, you know, we think like, where was the German church during the Holocaust? Yeah. You know, what were they thinking, sure, you know? Sure. Um, could this be a similar moment in history? I, that's a, it's a genuine question. I don't, I don't want to get over the, over the top or overstate whatever. But I, as I look around uh, and I, I hear people, I literally hear, you know, Bible believing Christians say, well, it's their fault. They started it. I'm like, yeah, but there's like 10,000 dead children. Well, so what? They started it. I'm like, two-year-olds? Like, what, what do you mean they? Well, like, it, they just say they're a, all terrorists. They're all, yeah. It just doesn't make, it's just, it's, it's like, it, it's sickening and immoral the way people frame this. I'm not saying there's not complications. I'm not saying Israel doesn't, quote unquote, have a right to defend itself. I don't, I don't know if this is self-defense, but you know, like, sure, sure. but some of the rhetoric I hear from Christians, I'm like, where did your moral logic go? Well, it's a failure of discipleship, right? It's a failure to train men and women in the congregations to think well and to apply biblical wisdom to contemporary politics in a way that's not neat and tidy and doesn't really give us a handbook about how we ought to think about these issues. So it's a, it's a, it's an example of a wider, more uh, um, deep deficit and just basic discipleship and especially discipling the mind, learning to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. Uh, on the one hand, it's also, um, uh, we just have a, a historical amnesia, right? Uh, there are parts of uh, American evangelicalism that think that uh, American Christianity uh, started in 1970 in Costa Mesa, <laughs> which is right, perhaps a little bit of a exaggeration, but um, we don't understand the history of the American church or evangelicalism beyond the United States. I mean, a perfect place to start for that moral question he asks is to think about the Christian Reformed Church that was um, had position of influence in apartheid South Africa. That's the denomination of the college where I went, Calvin College and now Calvin University in Grand Rapids is part of the Christian Reformed Church. These are Dutch Reformed thinkers that moved to the U.S., and there's been lots of theological um, reflection, repentance, and political action in response to, okay, what was the role of the Reformed Church in supporting apartheid in South Africa? How do we understand oh, the yeah. theological and political consequences of that? And can we learn from that? That was a fairly recent case, right? That only goes back to the 80s and 90s when there's been some some uh, kind of a wake-up. I'll say, wait a minute, this denomination, were we complicit in this? To what extent were we legitimating apartheid rule? What was our role in, in discriminating against our black Af- South African brother and sister? Um, so we have contemporary examples of that that would be a, provide a good moral framework for considering the current crisis. 
Do you think part of it too is like how we even get our information, like the propaganda that can exist on both sides, you know, like it just creates such a binary. Like if you're not in full support of Israel, then you are supporting terrorism and you're pro Hamas or something, you know, rather than condemning evil, whenever evil exists and acknowledging that there's an evil committed on uh, all, all sides. um, I don't know. Cause I, yeah, that's uh, yeah, I do. I agree. I I do think it's a discipleship discipleship problem. And it's also maybe an example of just the way our brains, we can't really deal with that complexity. It's all or nothing thinking, right? It has to be this way or that. There's um, a good guy and a bad guy, oppressor, oppressed. Yeah. And right, if, we, wrong, if, we, yeah. If, if any of us have spent some time in therapy, we're, we're well aware of the all or nothing <laughs> thinking, right? That we kind of double down when we're anxious or stressed. We need some moral clarity. And so we have to impose clarity on a situation where the reality actually evades that simple classification. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that requires wisdom, discernment. And that's why I say grief and lament. Perhaps that's the place we start. I think we're under-trained in, in what it means to practice that, not only as individuals, but as communities. What would it mean to grieve grieve that loss together? As we wrap things up, well, why don't you sure. yeah, give us some and uh, help us, help disciple us, uh, Austin. I mean, you're, you're, a, you're a Christian who is an uh, expert in these areas. Like, um, how should we as Christians, as a church, you know, respond to the complexity, October 7th, terrorism, possible genocide. Like how should we respond to all these things? Right. So there's a couple of different ways, I think, right? You've had folks on the show that are brothers and sisters in Christ in the West Bank, in Gaza, and now in Israel. There are Christian communities there that have a voice that we need to pay attention to, to pray for, to listen to, to be instructed by. There was at the beginning of the conflict, there's a evangelical seminary in Beirut, Lebanon, that put out a prayer guide. And so they had a prayer guide that had um, some of the Psalms of Lament alongside some song. And then they had some links on YouTube to hymns they were singing together in Arabic and Aramaic. And right, we can participate in that liturgy. Thanks to technology, we can participate in that liturgy together. And so as we listen um, listen to um, folks like Munther Isaac and Daniel Benura and others, that can provide a good um, a good theological corrective and knowing how to, how to um, direct our prayer and, and, and support. And also, I think... Uh, uh, necessitates that we spend time with the minor prophets, that we understand um, um, biblical anger against injustice, grief, lament, um, praying, um, adjusting the aperture of our prayers, not only how we pray, but the time the time span in which we expect the Lord to move, um, what it would mean to um, be zealous for that uh, um, for that reality, for, for all things to be made new, and to also um, um, pray that we would be wise and discerning and that our Categories and worldview and expectations would be disrupted in a holy manner, that we would be growing in sanctification by that, even though that's uncomfortable and can be confusing and that we'd be uncomfortable saying, Lord, I don't know, but your kingdom come. Can you recommend a, a book or two or or maybe an online source or something that uh, people want to just learn more about the stuff we've been talking about that you've found uh, to be helpful? I'm sorry, as often, yeah. As a, uh, yeah, I, I put you on the spot there. I didn't prepare you for yeah, that. Yeah. But, uh, was, yeah. Yeah, so there's Bethlehem Bible College in, in the West Bank. Obviously, Daniel Benoit is connected to that. They have some great resources for Palestinian Christian perspective. I'm a scholar, so I would recommend um, Rashid Khalidi is a historian, uh, Khalidi rather, is a historian at Columbia, wrote something called The Hundred Year Dwarf for Palestine. So Rashid's work is helpful in kind of making the case that Zionism as a political movement is an example of settler colonialism. That's from a kind of a Palestinian perspective. There's Israeli responses to that, folks like Benny Morris. Um, uh, Michael Oren was the U- uh, Israeli ambassador to the U.S. wrote a great history of the Six Day War. That would be a Zionist response 
Um, Benny Morris has done some great work. Elon Pape has written The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. It's a seminal text in talking about 1940. I think, uh, uh, Preston, you talked about reading that or encountering uh, yeah. uh, Elon's work. Um, so I there's just, a revisionist uh, line of his Israeli historians that are helpful there. Um, but the reading list can go on and on. Yeah, I read, uh, yeah, pa- I've read Pape's uh, Ethnic Cleansing um, about 47, 48. Very extensive, my goodness. And then I just finished uh, Khalidi's book, which is outstanding. And, you and know, it's well written. Yeah, it's accessible. Very. Yeah. And I, I felt it to be, you know, Pape's, oddly enough, the, you know, he's Israeli and his felt a little more one sided than Khalidi, who's Pal- Palestinian, I think, sure. Palestinian American. And I thought he was very, yeah. I thought he was very fair. It wasn't like an activist. He's, he's writing as a, as a historian. And, and um, it was so good to give just a hundred year context. He goes from, from Balfour to uh, uh, 2017. Um, so it's, yeah, 100 years, 1917 to 2017. Um, and I, yeah, I do need to read Benny Morris because I've heard that he will give a, a different perspective, somewhat different, not totally, but different than Pape. He'll fill in some gaps there. So um, he's gotten more, uh, from what I hear, right wing than he was when he started first writing on this topic. <laughs> I don't know if he's it's reversed post, some of his, I think it's post-Camp yeah. David. So after 2000, you saw the political and moral collapse of the Israeli left. Right, they haven't really maintained political political popularity. They're, they're, um, that was a real moral political defeat for progressive Israelis. The defeat of Camp David in, in 2000, and so that may reflect a, a broader generational shift. Also, there's demographic things more extent there. But Benny, his earlier works great. The more contemporary stuff, um, he's written about the Armenian genocide of Armenian Christians by the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. So it's a, he's he's good on the persecution of ethnic and religious minorities. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, so I'd say you know the folks in Bethlehem. Uh, provided Palestinian perspective. There's a group in Washington D.C. called the Philos Project. They're Christian Zionists. Um, that 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 would give you a um, an in-depth look at, at uh, Christian Zionism, both for American evangelicals and also those in the state of Israel. Robert Nicholson is the guy that leads Philos. So if you're looking for a Christian Zionist perspective, he would be the one to represent that. And so I can kind of give you a menu or a collection of different voices yeah, to slowly kind of sort that out and 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 work on it over time. But it's going to take some time and. Not not everyone's going to have the interest or, or ability or effort to put into that, of course. Yeah, take time. I, I, yeah, go slow. Take time because I and I'll read something and I, f- I feel like I'm passionate about you know that if their, their viewpoint and I I need to always pull myself back and say okay that was one book one perspective I need to read several others you know to just just try to slowly form my um, opinions on this very complex situation so that I'm not just like getting over my skis on stuff you know so. Uh, I should advertise. I mean, we just, I don't know if you know, but we just added a pre-conference to the Exiles conference on this oh, good. very question. Two people oh, on each side. Da- Daniel is going to be speaking and, and uh, Gary good. Burge, who uh, yeah. is emeritus. Um, and then um, I'm blanking on some names. Shoot. <laughs> I've floating. got to get, uh, um, uh, yeah. Um, oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. There, <laughs> there's a guy who's, yeah. Anyway, I've got people on the other side who, what well, one guy used to, uh, um, He's like a scholar. Used to be a scholar for uh, uh, Jews for Jesus. Um, brilliant, brilliant guy who's on the on the more Zionist side. I think he's very nuanced in that. Um, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name, Mike. Mike Cosper. Golly, so, yeah, Christianity. <laughs> Mike Cosper. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's been pretty outspoken in support of Israel. Uh, very sharp sure. journalist. Um, right. And yeah, so we're gonna have a yeah, Mike hopefully did. a really gracious and yet forthright conversation from different sides so um that'll be april 18th in boise i know uh, austin uh thank you so much for your time man really appreciate the conversation um you have a website austin 
Uh, Noop. I didn't ask you how to. Is that how he's pronouncing name? It's Nuppy like puppy. Yeah. Nuppy. Yeah. I, okay. That, okay. Austin Nuppy like puppy. Uh, AustinNuppy.com. You got loads of uh, stuff on there where people can find out more about your work. Thanks so much for being uh, on Theologian Rob, bro. Thanks for having me. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network. 